This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The lack of gravity in space confuses the plants more than any radiation dose they're getting, really. Hello, and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Daniel Bennett, the editor of BBC Focus magazine. At the moment, the world seems to be going ever more nuclear. Governments are keen for us to increase the use of nuclear power to cut greenhouse gas emissions, while the US and North Korea are at loggerheads over nuclear warheads. Plus, if we want to set up a base on the Moon or Mars we're going to have to figure out how to grow food in an environment that's been bombarded by radioactive cosmic rays. In this episode, Focus's production editor, Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, meets Professor Neil Willey from the University of the West of England. His work takes a look at the effects of radiation on plants. Not only is he studying tomato and rocket plants grown from seeds exposed to cosmic rays aboard the ISS, but he's also ventured to Chernobyl to monitor the effects of a nuclear meltdown on the surrounding area. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. I understand that you got some rocket and tomato seeds and they got sent up to the ISS. Yes, yeah. So when when did that happen? When were they sent up to the ISS? Um, well, we've got two kind of different lots of seeds. One were some rocket seeds that went up with uh, Tim Peake. They were part of a project that was managed by the European Space Agency and by the um, Royal Horticultural Society uh, in England. And they went up, uh, I think, in... December 2015. They came back down in June 2016 at the same time as Tim Peak. And that, well, sorry, I should say we've got them. 
tomato seeds as well, which were from a they're from a big Canadian project called Tomatosphere, and the tomato seeds that we got uh, went up uh, to the International Space Station in 2017 and kind of came back in July August 2017. Okay, then so they were up there for a few months then, both the sort of tomato and the rocket seeds. Yeah, they're both up there for six months, and that's kind of how long it would take on a manned space flight to Mars, probably. Okay, so they, they, um, now they've come back to Earth, are they all being planted up now? Yes, both of them actually are part of uh, quite big schools uh, projects. Uh, we were just sort of uh, piggybacking on the back of these schools projects. So uh, the Canadian one, particularly the tomato seeds, just absolutely lots and lots and lots of seeds have been sent to schools all around Canada for school children to uh, uh, test their germination and to see how they grow. But also the rocket seeds were sent to lots and lots and lots, I think more than a thousand schools in um, uh, in the UK for uh, school kids to germinate and see how they grew. So um, why did you choose rocket and tomato seeds in particular? Are these, um, is there any reason why or just because they're a sort of food crop or? Uh, we didn't really choose them. We just kind of got some seeds from ongoing projects that, that um, these other people were uh, were kind of carrying out. But I mean, the rocket seeds were uh, obviously because they were going up on a rocket and I guess that um that appealed to the to the school kids um and it made for some quite good um kind of logos for the projects and things these kind of rocket seeds going up but the tomato seeds basically it's a food crop and quite a lot of the interest in plants and seeds in space is for um providing food on uh space flights for astronauts so um tomatoes are just a widely used food crop and we know lots about their physiology and genetics and their growth so uh, i guess it's quite a um an obvious thing to pick it's an easily grown crop plant am i right in thinking that um this is really important research because obviously if we did do a trip to mars or a trip to the moon or something then um the plants would get exposed to quite a lot of radiation from cosmic rays. And so you want to sort of see how that's going to affect the plants? Yes, yeah. I mean, the the, the most important thing is, uh, uh, as yet, nobody's invented a way for anything else to happen other than we're going to have to take all our food uh, with us to Mars. And mostly that's going to have to be in the form of crop plants to grow as we go and if we colonise Mars, because we just couldn't take enough food uh, with us for the long journey or for anybody to spend any time on Mars, just the kind of amount of food would be too much uh, to take. So um, uh, there's you know a lot of interest in plants in space just because we have to take them on a space flight, but also because uh, on space flight, they get exposed to a lot of radiation. And this is partly because if you imagine a kind of a spacecraft going through at deep space, it gets exposed to radiation from absolutely all directions. Actually, when you land on Mars and you colonise Mars, uh, Mars itself kind of shields you a bit from some of the radiation from kind of one half of the universe if you're st- sitting on the, the surface of Mars, but you get it from the other half. So actually one of the one of the issues is the radiation in a little kind of spacecraft going through space on the way there. Uh, there's also the, the radiation on the surface of Mars, for example, is uh, much higher than it is on Earth because there's, you know, there's no magnetosphere that surrounds um, uh, Mars and, and, and there's nothing to kind of decrease some of the cosmic radiation reaching the surface of Mars like there is on, on Earth. But, there's, but part, of the, part of the issue is getting there because the spacecraft is particularly susceptible to radiation from absolutely all directions from across the universe. So um, from your research, have you sort of found that radiation 
pollution does affect the plants in any way, like negative or positive, um, or are you still waiting to find that out? We're, we're still waiting to find some of it out, but we've grown a number of the rocket and tomato uh, uh, plants from the seeds that have been up onto the International Space Station, and it has remarkably little effect on the plants. You can find a few subtle effects, but it doesn't really have much effect on the plants. It has certainly much less effect on the plants than it does on the astronauts. And, you know, there are well-known effects of space radiation on astronauts. And so the in spacecraft, they're shielded from some of the radiation and so on. But even then, uh, the radiation has some effects on them. Uh, the radiation certainly has much fewer effects, uh, if any, on the plants than the lack of gravity. Plants uh, are very, very sensitive to gravity. So obviously when a seed germinates, part of it knows to form a root and grow down, and the other part of it knows to form a shoot and grow up. Uh, and that's all because it's sensing gravitational fields. So actually the kind of the, the lack of gravity in space confuses the plants more than any radiation dose they're getting really. So when you when you put them on the space stage and bring them back down here and germinate the seeds, the, the plants grow pretty well, really. So do we think they've got any sort of natural defences against radiation? Seeds are certainly pretty resistant to the effects of radiation. It's not really because they've kind of naturally evolved defences to radiation itself, but just because a, a seed is a plant's way of surviving all sorts of environmental insults and stresses that are thrown at it. And because seeds are kind of, they're, they're really, really dehydrated. So most organisms like us are about 80% water. A seed is only about 10% water. And so it's like a dehydrated uh, living thing that's in sort of suspended animation. It's not uh, it's not dead. I mean, if the seed's completely killed, it won't germinate again. But it's sort of in suspended animation. And in that state, it's pretty resistant to all sorts of stresses, including radiation. So, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of radiation on a seed often doesn't affect them that that much. And some people think that if you give uh, seeds a small dose of radiation, it actually helps them germinate better. Okay, so if we um, if we grew these seeds that have been up on the um, ISS, would they be safe for us to eat, or because they've been exposed to radiation at some point, are they would they be bad for us to eat, or you know does it not really matter? Or I don't think it has any effect really. The the radiation in, in space is just not big enough to uh, make any differences that matter as far as the kind of quality of the food that you could grow are concerned. Um, technically, if radiation levels get you know somewhat higher than the um, than the amounts that you get in space. It could could kind of mutate, cause mutations in DNA and it might cause mutations in a gene that did something a bit funny that might make the, make it not very good to eat. But those those are just much higher levels of radiation than the ones that you get in space. Okay, so if we did um, set up one of these bases on the Moon or Mars or something then, as long as we could provide some sort of gravity so the plant knew which way it was up and which way it was down almost, then... Yeah. Um, then the plants could sort of be grown quite happily, really, by the looks of it. You know, if we could get the right soil for them, and yes, yes, you could. There's, yeah, and there is, there is, of course, some some gravity. I'm afraid I can't quite remember how uh, gravity on Mars compares to gravity on Earth, but there's some kind of uh, effects of gravity there. Um, so actually, that's not so much for a problem when when the kind of if you grew them on Mars, but uh, some kind of shielding is probably desirable for the plants because the doses on Mars are are quite high, uh, you know, a bit higher than they'd get on the International Space Station. And, you know, it's a few 
you go off into kind of deep space, the radiation gets higher than, than up on the International Space Station. So some kind of shielding for the plants might be beneficial, but it might not make that much difference. But you probably need shielding for anybody who's going to look after or tend the plants because the effects of radiation on humans on the surface of Mars are quite significant over long periods of time. So some kind of shielding is probably necessary. But then, yes, with the right kind of soil, or basically it'll more or less certainly be in hydroponic systems, I should think, you know, kind of nutrient solution-based growth. There's, you know, plants, uh, if you provide them with the right amounts of light and carbon dioxide and things, could quite happily grow on Mars. Oh, they're better defended than we are then, really, aren't they, by the sounds of it? So. Yeah, they're, they're kind of basically probably not as sensitive to some of these uh, primordial stresses. I mean, radiation, there's natural radiation on Earth. And in the deep past, there was more radiation on Earth than there is now. So uh, some of these kind of primordial stresses, things like plants are a bit less susceptible to than complicated animals with central nervous systems and things. Because <laughs> I'm right in thinking as well that um, like with Chernobyl and places like that where there have been, where there has been a lot of radiation, that plants are sort of being quite happy with it as well, haven't they? They've re-established it and, you know, everything's kind of all right, isn't it, for the, from a plant's point of view anyway? Yes, the thing, the thing about Chernobyl, and I'm, I'm part of a big research project that's just spent the last five years doing a lot of research at, at, at Chernobyl on the plants and animals there. Uh, but the main thing to remember about uh, uh, Chernobyl is that the, um, the, the different amounts of radiation that we can be talking about, there were forests very close to the reactor uh, when it exploded that just got unbelievably high doses of radiation and uh, those kind of trees and plants weren't okay um, and even now there's quite a strong gradient of radioactivity so there are places where there's high patches and places where there are low patches um, but actually even where uh, the forests were you know destroyed by the effects of radiation by the effects of the blast in those places you know a forest has redeveloped it's not redeveloped in some of the, the areas that got the very highest doses but we're talking about really really significant doses like nuclear blast type doses in those places uh, a forest has recovered it's not quite the same as it was before but it has recovered but in other places along the dose gradient uh, you know there can be areas of quite high radiation where uh, you know the forest to all intents and purposes many of the plants lots of the animals are uh, are quite happy living in those places that have got quite high levels of radiation you know compared to any that you would usually find in the environment so yes the plants and even the animals are, uh, at Chernobyl have turned out to be actually a bit less susceptible to the effects of radiation than some people might have thought. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's one of those things as well, if you sort of test it over the generations as well and sort of see if future generations, you know, how the sort of, if genes have got affected at all. Yes, and it's interesting. One of the things that we've been doing on the project that I'm part of, uh, that's funded by the Natural Environment Research Council, is to try and look at the effect of uh, Chernobyl levels of radiation over uh, many generations, because there have been lots and lots and lots of studies at Chernobyl, but people tend to go in and get some samples and then come out again. And they haven't really kind of uh, studied any effects that um, uh, might be occurring over multiple generations. So we've been trying to do that back in the lab here, actually, to follow things for multiple generations. But, um, you know, the, there's been surprisingly few multi-generational experiments at Chernobyl. There's been loads and loads of experiments there and Ukrainian and Russian scientists did an enormous amount of work in the kind of 10 or 15 years following the disaster. But um, but yeah, some of the multi-generational stuff is um, quite interesting to follow. But on the project that I'm part of, 
uh, we don't think that you find anything like the level of effects that have sometimes been reported from the Chernobyl exclusion zone by non-scientists, but also by some scientists as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's quite a sort of um, current topic, isn't it? Because obviously with greenhouse gases, um, people are looking to nuclear, saying it's sort of a clean energy resource. But I know there are yes. lots of concerns among the public, thinking, well, if there was a nuclear meltdown, then, you know, what would happen? And so that is a concern. So, certainly, certainly it is. And, I mean, basically in the UK, we've, uh, you know, we've we've decided to build at least one new nuclear power station in order to try and meet our carbon emission targets. Um, uh, there is a little bit of a debate to be had about the carbon emissions that are involved in actually building a nuclear power station and then taking it apart at the end of its life. And if you add those to the carbon budget, the carbon budget doesn't come out uh, quite as well as it does during the course of its operating life. But during the operating life of a nuclear power station, it produces huge amounts of electricity uh, for very few carbon emissions. So yes, it's, it's attractive for uh, nations like ours trying to meet their carbon emission targets. And so the work that we've been doing is uh, have been trying to assess what kind of uh, uh, effect any leaks from a nuclear um, waste repository might be. You know, it'd be uh, many hundreds of metres down to the surface and it would take a long time for anything to get to the surface. But if it did, we've been trying to answer the questions of whether it would have any effect on flora and fauna in a thousands of years' time if any of the radioactivity happened to get to the surface. So is it just something about humans that makes us particularly susceptible? Because, like I said, obviously it's Chernobyl if sort of the animals and plants have sort of come back quite quite quickly. I don't know, yep. like the Bikini Atoll as well. I know some of the coral reefs and the sharks there yes. are looking all right, but you know, humans can't go there. So is it just something about our DNA that makes us susceptible to radiation? No, no, not really. And where uh, humans aren't uh, particularly more susceptible to, um, uh, to radiation than other uh, large mammals, but actually the regulatory regimes for them are slightly different and normally for the purposes of environmental protection and this you know i'm not uh kind of all the legislation surrounding uh conservation is not really my area of expertise but for the but i think it's fairly the same for the conservation of all sorts of uh, all sorts of organisms from all sorts of environmental pollutants but for radiation it's the case that what we're interested in is protecting the ecosystem and protecting the populations and the communities, uh, protecting you know biodiversity and so on. And that's not quite the same as when you're trying to set up protection regimes for humans in which each individual matters. And so for, um, for regulating uh, the kind of radioactive exposure of humans, it's normally, normally regulated that exposure won't call, cause any more than kind of one extra cancer in a hundred thousand or a million, something like that. Whereas when we're when we're kind of protecting plants and animals and so on, uh, in in general, what we're interested in is is the community okay or is the ecosystem is okay? Have we affected biodiversity? And if we haven't, then it's fine. And sometimes that means that you know there might have been an individual plant or an individual animal that's been adversely affected. But if that doesn't affect the, com the community at the moment, uh, you know, legislatively, you don't have to protect every individual animal. You just have to collect the community and the biodiversity. So for humans, often the levels are set lower because we have to protect all individuals, not just the kind of communities or societies of humans. 
Um, so just sort of one final question now. Obviously, in the news, there's a lot at the moment about nuclear weapons. and I think people are quite concerned about that. If there was sort of a nuclear bomb, then obviously in the direct sort of zone where that hit, that would obviously, like the plants and animals biodiversity there would be sort of wiped out straight away. But then as it sort of moved out, you'd find sort of fewer and fewer effects and then stuff would recover as well further out sort of quite soon. Is that correct? So. Yes, yes. And I mean, and actually... Uh, in quite a lot of places, even if the kind of vegetation is completely raised to the ground and so on, often there's a seed bank buried in the soil and so on, and that gets irradiated, but the number of the seeds will still germinate, recolonize and so on. And so, I mean, uh, a nuclear a nuclear bomb right underneath the bomb, kind of uh, the, the epicenter of the explosion, the plants wouldn't survive. And actually, they'd mostly not survive just because of blast damage and so on. And uh, if an area is fairly radioactive, it takes a little while for the plants to recolonize and stuff, but they, you know, they can, they can recolonize more than you might think. Back in the 1960s, people did remarkable experiments where they put absolutely huge radiation doses in forests and, um, you know, just as a point source. So it was radiating all around. And, you know, quite a bit of damage is caused very close to where these massive radiation sources are. But as you go a bit further out, actually, the plants, the plant communities and the ecosystem is often not as adversely affected as you might imagine from these huge sources of radiation. And so, you know, populations and communities of plants are relatively resistant and they resist the effects of huge forest fires and of droughts and all these kind of things. So the kind of communities and ecosystems of plants can uh, survive remarkably well and can recolonize uh, remarkably well, especially, especially as seeds. You know, the seed bank's relatively resistant to all sorts of environmental stresses. Yeah, I mean, I did read a thing recently about um, when the massive asteroid hit Earth and wiped out a lot of the dinosaurs, that a lot of seeds sort of remained buried underground and they sort of survived it as well, which is why sort of dinosaurs that could um, dig down were able to sort of get to the seeds and things like that. And they were the ones that eventually came birds. Um, so I suppose it shows doesn't it, just how sort of resilient that a seed is. You know, you'd think it tiny and insignificant, but actually, if it can survive like an asteroid impact and radiation, then... Yes, that's, I haven't heard that before about the seed bank and the dinosaurs and the evolution of birds but yes there's a certain amount of sense in it seeds are kind of remarkably uh, resistant to all sorts of environmental stresses and you've probably seen that um you know there are seeds that have been germinated after they've been buried in peat bogs and all that kind of stuff for thousands of years i mean there's quite a lot of examples of seeds having survived over thousands of years in quite kind of inhospitable environmental conditions and then germinating again i mean they really are a kind of a a plant's uh, really highly environmentally resistant way of travelling through space and time. So a seed is kind of quite a remarkable thing, actually, and does allow plants to um, resist all sorts of stresses at a kind of a community and ecosystem level. Individual plants obviously get um, uh, get hit by some of the stresses and by wildfires and stuff, but the ecosystem as a whole uh, quite often bounces back um, uh, more than you might expect. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing to say really is that, I mean, uh, of course, at, at very high dose rates, radiation has adverse effects and at kind of medium and some low dose rates, it, it can have uh, effects on individuals at a relatively low rate. But when you're protecting humans, that really that really matters. Um, but chronic low doses of radiation to 
many animals and plants uh, we don't think have the the kind of level of adverse effects that some people have uh, have reported most animals and plants are remarkably resistant to the effects of all sorts of environmental stresses and quite often a, a kind of a chronic low dose of radiation doesn't quite have the same effect as people think. I think the good analogy to use is actually analogy with electricity and everybody's quite happy to think that kind of a, a 1.5 volt electric shock, which is what you get by putting your fingers either end of a battery doesn't really do anything but 50,000 volts will kill you straight away and radiation is kind of the same really high dose of radiation will um, have a really profound effects and can kill you pretty quickly but a very low dose of radiation is just like a low dose of a few millivolts or volts of electricity which we carry around with us all the time in our pockets and doesn't have much adverse effect. That was Professor Neil Willey from the University of the West of England talking about the effect of radioactivity on plants. Thanks for listening to the Science Focus podcast. In our January issue, which is on sale now, we report on a mission to visit the sun, Michael Mosley finds out whether dry January is worth it, and we reveal the science of fighting fat. And of course, there's much, much more. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.